0: Yeah, in case you didn't hear, Mr. Friedman, children, you may be dismissed to Children's Church. All right, very good. Now, Mark said there will be, well, God said there will be a day. Uh, Mark just reminded us of what we were singing about, so thank you for that reminder, Mark, of the incredible... Uh, Just that day, what a day that is going to be. I hope you're looking forward to that day. You know, we celebrate the Lord's table until that day. Paul mentions that day in Philippians chapter 1, uh, verse 6, where he says, being confident of this one thing, that he who began a good work in you will perform it until the day. Until what day? Until that day, that day that we see Jesus face-to-face. What a glorious day that will be. We are so excited and looking forward to that day. Until then, though, we are striving to be what God wants us to be here on earth. So we do this thing on Sunday morning that we call church. You know why we do it. We don't do it because we don't have anything better to do, although we really don't. We do it, though, because we want to gather together as a group of people corporately to worship the one true God. Well, why would we do that, Pastor? Well, because God commanded us to do that. He wants us to gather together to declare his worth, to sing praises to his name. You know the cool thing about that is, even though it's all focused at the Lord, all focused at our one true God, the writer of Hebrews tells us that when we gather together corporately as a group, We are encouraging the group. We are encouraging one another within the body of believers. So that's what we do on a regular basis. Every time the church gathers, whether it's Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, sometime during the week, sometime on a Saturday, whatever it is, as the church gathers, people are encouraged and God is glorified. This morning, we're going to continue our study. Uh, we're, we're looking at the Psalms, some of the Psalms. Uh, Sunday in the Psalms, or Summer in the Psalms, okay? Psalms in the Summer There's uh, not really an official title for our series uh, at this point, but we're looking at several different Psalms. Last week, we looked together at Psalm 51, and we were reminded some amazing truths there from the psalmist. Today, we're going to look at another very familiar psalm. But let me introduce this uh, time together with you with a, a little bit of... Um, Carl asked me one time about cricket. Now, what do you know about cricket? They're little black bugs that hop around, right? And when they, squeak their, or when they rub their legs back and forth together, they make a squeaky noise, right? You know that about cricket. You also know that some people have these things and their cell phone provider is cricket. Cricket. By the way, if you're looking for a good cell phone provider, they're okay, and you can either talk to Mark or I, and if you use our name, we get like a little bonus there, okay? That's a little extra for you. But anyway, cricket, that's not what we're talking about, okay? While we were in South Africa, and the question Carl raised was about a sport, and I demonstrated it a little bit here a while back. I had my cricket jersey on. I had a set of wickets up here. I had a cricket bat, and showed you what a cricket ball is like, but... Can I tell you this? It took us quite a while to figure out what cricket was all about after we moved to South Africa. You know, I'm kind of a sports nut, right? That's not a surprise to you. I love sports, and I have favorite teams. And we're not going to talk about them this morning either, okay? Uh, Probably because you know why. But anyway, um, so this idea of cricket, we would turn the TV on, and, and when we first got to South Africa, there wasn't a lot of choices if you wanted to turn the TV on. So, if there was a cricket match on, guess what you watched on TV? Cricket. Cricket. Okay, especially if you wanted to watch it in English. Now, when we first went, they had English one night, Afrikaans another night, and then they simulcasted in some of the other tribal languages. It was really funny to watch Chuck Norris in, um, say, like, um, I don't know, Zulu or Kosa. I mean, it was just crazy seeing them translate. Remember the old Bruce Lee movies where his lips would move and then it would finally catch up with him. That's kind of like Chuck Norris uh, in Kosa, in, in all right? Um, but anyway, we watched cricket. So we'd have cricket on. We had no clue what was going on. Guy would hit the ball, and he'd stand there in his crease. And I'm like, why don't you run? You're supposed to run. It only makes sense after you hit the ball to run. Stand there. Somebody would field it and throw it back. And then they would say, well, that's the over, So you're expecting something to happen, right? When it's over, the only thing that happened was the batter's changed ends. That was the over. See, an over in cricket is six, not even six pitches, because they don't call them pitches. They call them, they, they bowl the ball. See, let me give you a little explanation of this game of cricket. Some people try to compare it with baseball or softball. There's no comparison. That's what we did, and that's why we had such a hard time understanding what cricket was. Let me tell you this. I coached a couple different levels of baseball in South Africa. You know what's really hard about that? Is you get these kids that have grown up playing cricket, and they're trying to make cricket, or they're trying to make baseball like cricket. When you bowl the ball... That's what you call it. The, the, you don't have a pitcher in cricket. You have a bowler in cricket. And when I talk about bowling, sorry, Dave, it's not the bowling that you're used to. It's not 10 pins. It's, it's, it's a wicket with three stumps and bales across the top of it. You got all of that? You know what we're talking about now? It's cricket, okay? And when the bowler bowls the ball, he can't bend his elbow. I can't tell you how many times I told kids at different levels, different ages, you gotta bend your elbow. You can't pitch the ball unless you bend your elbow. You see, a bowler, when he bowls, he has to keep his arm straight. He might bend his body in all kinds of strange ways to get spin or whatever, but he has to keep his arm straight. And when he delivers, he delivers like this without bending his elbow. It's tough. And I can tell you that it really is tough because when we played action cricket, I always got in trouble for pitching the ball. The, the guy who stood up on the... like He looked like this big lifeguard up on a stand. He would, he would look at me and he'd say, you throwing the ball! You must bowl it! How do I do that? I can't throw the ball without bending my elbow. I've been doing this for 35... At the time, 35, 40 years. That's all I know. Anyway, the pitcher doesn't exist in cricket. The bowler exists. And the guy who has the wooden stick in his hands... He's called a batsman. Now, we call him a batter, okay? But he's called a batsman in cricket. And in baseball, something that the Yankees seem to have forgotten how to do, you're supposed to hit the ball, right? Okay, your goal is to hit the ball and make it go as far as you can. In cricket, your goal is not necessarily to hit the ball. Why play the game, right? Okay, but your job is to defend your wicket, So if you're defending your wicket and you have the bat to defend the wicket, you might just touch the ball, bump it, stop it, block it is what they call it. Block the ball from getting to your wicket. That's what most of the batters are, that's what they're doing. They're blocking the ball. They're defending the wicket. Now, every once in a while, they'll hit the ball. And if they hit it far enough and they think they can make it to the next wicket, there's only two of them, one on each end. If you think you can make it to the next wicket, they run. And when they run, they cross that's when you decide, okay, we're all in on this one. We've got to go to the next wicket. So they cross, and if they get to the crease with just their bat, they don't have to cross their body. Just the end of the bat has to cross the crease before they knock the bales off the wicket. You're safe. If you don't, you're out. And in cricket, you never want to go out for a duck. Okay, And you certainly don't want a golden duck. That's really bad. That's getting put out on the first bowl, the first ball of the game, okay? So anyway, uh, can you understand why we struggled so much, okay? And when you were out, the other team was in? Not when the guy called you out because you were still in, because you were still batting. Not you because you got out, but the next guy was going to come up and be in. Yeah, it's kind of hard to understand it all. So we struggled and we struggled and we struggled, Finally, we had a young man come over to our house, and he played cricket. What a difference when he started to explain to us the game. He told us why they did what they did. He showed, And, and here's another thing. You know how long a game lasts in cricket? Five days. One game, five days. So you would think, well, there must be lots of innings in cricket, right? There's two. There's two innings. And here's where it gets really interesting. We thought we started to understand the game a little bit. And then I'm watching this five-day test match. Also, there's also what they call ODIs, one-day cricket matches, which are 50 overs, limited overs. And if you're really bored with that, there's what they call, they kind of call calling it wicked cricket, but they shortened it to 20 overs. That's about the length of a baseball game. Okay, now I'm trying to help you understand this game, right? It's really, though, beyond understanding unless you've, Have somebody sit down and watch the game with you and tell you what they're doing. So we're watching this game, and it's on because it's on for five days, and if it's on, that's what you're watching, okay? Um, And I'm watching the game, and all of a sudden, the guy says, we're going to make a declaration. You're going to make a what? I had no idea what a declaration was in cricket. Well, let me tell you what a declaration is in cricket. A declaration is this. This team, the first team that's batting, they scored enough, enough runs, and it's probably around 500 runs, maybe 550 runs that they've scored in their inning. Never seen that many runs scored in a baseball game. Some teams don't even score that many all year long. Okay? But they've scored 500 runs. And they say, you know what? We're going to declare. And in their their declaring, they're saying, we think we've scored enough runs. We're very confident in our performance that you guys, being the team that you are, you're not going to score that many runs. So we're just going to make our declaration. We're going to say, we think we can win with what we've got. Wow. So if the team, um, and that that means they're giving up their bat, they're they're not going to bat anymore. And if the team that comes up to bat then next doesn't score enough runs, they don't meet the follow-on, game's over. And the team that declared won. But you see, this declaration tells you we are absolutely confident that what we've accomplished here is good enough for a victory. The psalmist is making a declaration in Psalm 19. The psalmist is saying, our God is absolutely good enough. Our God is amazing. Our God is incredible. There is nothing better than our God. Our God gives us the victory in everything. We are confident. We have nothing to be worried about. We have nothing to lose. Our God is going to cause us to be victorious in life. Wow. That's a pretty confident statement by the psalmist, isn't it? I've asked Timothy to play a, the, the reading of Psalm 19. We're not gonna, you don't have to stand this morning, but we are going to listen, and the words will be up on the screen as Psalm 19 is read for us. Just by reading this passage, or we memorized this passage at one time with, the, with another church that was doing a Bible memory project. Just by reading or reciting this passage of Scripture, our hearts are stirred by the incredible awe of our great God. Listen carefully as this passage is read for us and it shows that our God has revealed himself in great ways and he is indeed declaring his sufficiency. Go ahead, Timothy.
1: Rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired of bank and gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by then is your servant warned, in keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgressions. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock
0: and my redeemer. So as we listen to this passage of Scripture being read to us, we see that God has indeed declared to every person who has ever lived His glory through creation. In the second part of the psalm, David clearly communicates to us that God has revealed himself or declared himself through the pages of Holy Scripture. David poetically describes it as the law of the Lord and the testimony of the Lord. So we see the significance of this psalm when Paul quotes from it in Romans 10. He's talking about the communication of the gospel message. This truth remains to us today. God uses his magnificent creation to begin the convicting work of the Holy Spirit in the heart of man. And then he burdens the heart of someone else, one of his children, to go and communicate that message to the individual who has been convicted by the Holy Spirit, And it brings us to that great verse in Romans 10, verse 17 says, so faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. It's the magnificent creation that sparks that faith, begins to work in an individual's heart and life and mind, and encourages him to think about, wow, I wonder where all this came from. How did this all happen? And then the Holy Spirit, as he's working in that individual's heart, he's working in somebody else's heart, maybe your heart that you would feel the need and be prompted to go and communicate the gospel to this other individual. Sometimes people move thousands and thousands and thousands of miles away and go to places that nobody has ever been to before because the Holy Spirit prompted them to go. And they go to this place, and and, and before they know it, they meet individuals who are looking for the gospel of Jesus Christ because the Holy Spirit is at work in their hearts. And faith is activated by the hearing of the word of God because somebody was obedient and took the gospel message. You might only have to go five minutes away. You know, we used to live in a country of, called America that was very well versed in the biblical things. The, the, the further and further down the road we go in our country, we find more or we find less and less people who have been exposed to the truth of the word of God. And it's like being, uh, you know, I remember the first time I met somebody in South Africa who didn't had never heard the gospel before, didn't know about David and Goliath, didn't know about Moses, didn't know about Noah who built an ark. They were illiterate to these things, some people there. And when you started telling them of the amazing things that our great God did, it was like, wow, this is incredible. There's really a God? I've been wondering about that. We find people today in America who don't have that exposure to the things of God's word. So we need to be willing, ready, and able to take the Word of God and communicate it to others. That is why it is so important for us to be individuals who know the Word of God. We must understand it. We must be able to communicate it clearly. And part of that communication sometimes is very helpful if you've got to store it away in your brain. Because then the Holy Spirit just takes it, boom, brings it to your mind, and you just start saying it. I remember somebody, I won't share his name, I'll look in his direction though. He said to me one time, he says, Pastor, I need to learn more before I can start sharing the gospel. I said, no, you don't. You need to just start talking about the gospel and the Holy Spirit will bring the things to your mind that you know. And he will use that in your life and in the other person's life. And as you do it more and more often and more and more frequently and more and more regularly, people will start to see the word of God proclaimed through your life and through your words. Wow, what an exciting thing that is to see happen in your life. Well, let's get into this Psalm 19, if you would, with me this morning. Psalm 19, the first of all, in the first six verses, in this declaration of God's glory, we see God's glory announced through his creation. We see it announced through creation. You know, we live in a beautiful part of the world, We look out and we see the hills and the greenery, and it's actually getting a little more greener uh, with the little bit of rain that we've been getting over the last couple of days. And then in a few more months, we're going to see the green turn to these amazing, vibrant colors, these oranges and these yellows and these reds, and we're going to say, wow, isn't that amazing? Look at that picture that God has painted. And we get to enjoy the splendor, even on that first snowfall, because before we get the snowfall, a lot of times things have kind of died off and it doesn't look so nice and it's kind of yucky. And, and then the snow, a blanket of snow covers everything in white. Clean looking, what a beautiful, it might be a little cold, but we're always amazed man, isn't that beautiful? Don't we, don't we go out and take pictures of the first snowfall because it's so amazing, especially if it's like 6 or 12 or 18 inches or 13. It doesn't have to be multiples of 6. But we look out there and we see all of this white stuff and we're like, yeah. And the kids are like, yeah, we got no school today. And they're all excited about it. We live in a beautiful creation. There's other places around the world that are as beautiful when we lived in South Africa, we had the mountain to look at. We had the ocean that was kind of at the base of the mountain, and we had these blue skies. And every once in a while, a cloud would roll in over top of the mountain, and it was called Table Mountain. So there was a tablecloth on Table Mountain, and it was just amazing. It was beautiful. And we were like, oh, another beautiful painting. Sometimes people come into our house and say, what is that mountain right there? That's Table Mountain, because we have a couple of them posted around our house. It's, you know, we would go then sometimes on a drive and we'd go out into the, to the country and see more like valleys and, and, and uh, vineyards growing. Just beautiful. We've had other missionaries come to our church and show the pictures of where God has sent them. And you know what? It's just as beautiful there. Why? Because it's God's handiwork on display. God didn't make nothing that looks like junk. It's all beautiful, it's all amazing, it's all incredible. And the heavens declare the glory of God. And the firmament shows his handiwork. That's the pronouncement of the heavens. We look here in verses 1 through the first part of verse 4. The heavens speak. The heavens speak. Now they don't literally have a voice, but they do make noise. The opening statement reveals to us that creation is a spokesperson for God. In other words, when people look out and they see this amazing handiwork, their first response isn't, oh, look what this rock made. Look what this stump made. Or look what this God that I made with my hands made. No, their first response is, wow, this is incredible. I wonder how this all came into existence. And that's when that the Holy Spirit has the opportunity to start taking in, into account the things that they have seen because of the witness of creation. Creation speaks, and creation begins to tell and bring an understanding that this world came into existence by the work of an almighty, all-powerful God. The word for heavens here is plural because it's not just talking about the heaven we can see, but David means all the heavens declare God's glory. Whether it is the air we breathe, which we can't see, that sustains our life on this planet, or the heavens that are home to the sun, the very, or the very abode of God himself, the heavens declare the glory of God. The fact that you and I can go, and stay alive is a declaration of God's very glory. What do they declare? They declare that our God is magnificent. Our God is incredible. Our God is indeed awesome. They declare the glory of God. Think about this for a moment with me, if you will. Have you ever laid back on the ground and gazed up at the sky when a cold front was moving through? I remember as a kid uh, just lying down because we were probably out playing baseball and it was getting too windy or something and we had to stop playing. But we laid down on the ground and we looked up and we saw these clouds looking like they were moving 100 miles an hour just rolling and rolling and rolling. And we looked like, wow, that's pretty cool. That's amazing. Or have you ever laid down at night, slept out under the stars? And looked up and saw all the the stars in the expanse that God has created. And maybe you started trying to count them. It didn't take long before you realized, there ain't no counting these things. There's too many of them. Wow. The heavens declare, they shout confidently about our great God. How about a lightning storm that sends brilliant flashes of light crashing to the earth? We think we've got a a pretty special thing going on on July 4th and other holidays when we have these firework displays going off. But I'm also more confident that there's nothing quite as brilliant as a lightning storm because the lightning lights up the whole sky. Not just where the firework went off, but it's the whole sky. So much so sometimes you can see things and maybe it's these things that you don't want to see. The lightning is amazing. Add to that the brilliance that is present in the very throne room of God Almighty. The heavens, even where God abides, declares the glory of God. And you say, Pastor, how do we know how amazing the throne room of God is? Well, read Revelation 4 sometime. That's a pretty amazing description of the throne room of God. It's an awe inspiring account of where our God is seated. It's incredible. The heavens declare the glory of God. What is the glory of God? Well, I like how the King James Study Bible defines the glory of God. It says the glory of God is the sum of all of God's perfections. Wow. Wow. The glory of God is the sum of all God's perfections. God is perfect in holiness. He's perfect in righteousness. He's perfect in majesty. And the list could go on and on and on and on. You add up all of those perfections and that is the glory of God. Stop and think about that for a moment if you would. The glory of God is probably more than you and I can actually comprehend. We can't wrap our minds around it. It's, can you say it? awesome the glory of god is indeed awesome so the heavens declare the glory of god and then the next statement is by the firmament the firmament shows his handiworks the firmament is the is both the atmosphere as well as the expanse that holds the stars that god has put in place listen to one how how one writer puts into perspective the vastness of the firmament with the naked eye, we can see about 5,000 stars, okay? With a small telescope, we can see about 2 million stars. With the Palomar telescope, we can see billions of, what am I going to say? Stars. Not stars, galaxies. Galaxies billions of galaxies to say nothing of, of individual stars. Then think about the distance of the heavenly bodies from the earth and from each other. Someone has pictured the distance as follows. If it, is, if it costs a penny to ride a 1,000 miles, a, a trip to the moon would cost $2.38. Now think about that for a minute. It costs a penny to travel a mile. Okay, 1,000 miles. It costs a penny to travel 1,000 miles. 1,000 miles, that's a long way. When we go from, from New York to Illinois, that's just over 1,000 miles. That's a, that's a long drive. Okay? Um, sometimes we do it in one day, but it takes us a long time. And we're only traveling 60 miles an hour. A penny, you can go for 1,000 miles. A trip to the moon would cost $2.38. You can buy a gallon of gas for that. A trip to the sun would cost $930. Okay, so the moon is closer than the sun. A trip to the nearest star that we see when we look up at night would cost $260 million. Now we're talking government money, huh? 260 million dollars although the stars may appear to be crowded in the firmament the distance between them is so great that they have been likened to lonely light ships a million miles apart floating in an empty sea if creation is so great how much greater is the creator day and night the heavens are telling the greatness of his power and wisdom What an amazing God. What an amazing creation. And that creator is known to you and I. We know him, he knows us. The firmament shows his handiwork. This message that the heavens declare is a singular message. What is the message that it is declaring? Well, the psalmist says, there's no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Now, we speak English, okay? And we are fortunate the most places we go also speak English. So we don't have a great language barrier. We always can generally communicate the needs that we have. But we have friends in South Africa that speak closer. Did you get that? Closa. You click your tongue from the top of your mouth. They have words that they click from the side of their mouth. They have words that they click from the bottom of their mouth. So it's a bunch of clucking going on when you talk. Okay? They don't don't have the privilege that we have where they can go anywhere in the world just about and and communicate. But you know what they understand? The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows His handiwork. That's pretty amazing. And, And... Every other language in the world, it doesn't matter what language you speak, the people who speak it understand the glory of God because of the amazing creation that God has blessed us with. There is no speech or language where their voice, the heavens and the firmament is not heard. There are no words, but plenty is said by the heavens and the firmament. Their audience is far and wide. We go on in that next verse, it says, their words have gone out to the ends of the earth. In fact, the message reaches to the four corners of the earth. Romans one nineteen and 20 confirmed the universal audience of the heavens. It says this, because what may be known of God is manifest in them in the heavens, for God has shown it to them For since the creation of the world, his invisible, God's invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. No person will be able to stand before God and say, I didn't know who you were. Why? Because the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. If a person stands before God and is sentenced to death, even if they only knew about creation, they will still go to hell because creation day and night, day after day is talking about the glory of God. God did this, God made this, God is amazing, God is awesome, God is incredible. It's shouting it out loud. Lord Kelvin, the Kelvin temperature scale. Lord Kelvin made this comment. If you think strongly enough, you will be forced by science to believe in God. I dare say Lord Kelvin was a a great scientific mind. Many scientists today probably can't hold a candle to the knowledge that he had. His conclusion was... If you think long and strongly enough about it, you will be forced by science to believe in God because the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. He goes on in verses the last part of verse 4 uh, in, through verse 6. He talks about the parade of the sun. The parade of the sun. David focuses in on the sun. In these verses, the sun no doubt is the cornerstone or the most awe-inspiring features in the heavens. In fact, David gives us the impression that the rest of the heavens were created as a dwelling place for the sun. Listen to what he says. He says, like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. In other words, when the groom steps out of his room, he's ready to get on with his day. What does his day hold in store for him? He's going to marry the love of his life. Okay, so the the excitement, there's enthusiasm, it all sets the tone on the wedding day when the bridegroom steps out of his room ready for the ceremony. The sun comes up each day with the same enthusiasm as it has every other day since God placed it in the sky and said, let there be light, and he created the sun and the moon and the stars. Every day, the sun gets up in the morning and it it shines with the same amount of brightness, the same amount of brilliance. You say, Pastor, I don't see it every day. Well, that's because there's clouds. I dare say this. If sin hadn't crept into the universe, I think we would see the sun every day. The clouds, result of sin. God had it all perfect. There was no rain at the beginning. There were no clouds. Not, at least not rain clouds, or storm clouds. The sun was there. The parade of the sun, like a bridegroom coming out of its chamber. Every single day it comes up. Why does it come up with the same excitement, the same enthusiasm? Because it was created for that purpose. It was made by God for that very reason. You know what? You and I should do the same. We would do well to follow the example of the sun waking every day with excitement and enthusiasm for how God might use us during the course of, of the day. David goes on, he says, like a strong man running its race, there's a certain joy that fills the heart of the champion as he runs his race. When he puts his hands up in the air and he crosses that finish line and he breaks through the tape, that champion, that guy who has won the race, there's nothing like it. It doesn't matter if he's done it a hundred times before, he still has that joy, that excitement, that enthusiasm. The winner! Yes! Yes! And you get to stand on the platform and you get to put the medal around your neck. Yes, and everybody knows it. In fact, you might not know when the Boston Marathon is, but on the day of the Boston Marathon, if you are a person who watches the news, you're going to find out who won the Boston Marathon. Because the champion is going to be declared. The sun is the champion of the creation and it is declaring one thing. Great is our God and greatly to be praised. You see, the far-reaching, the far-reaching effect of the sun is seen in its circuit that encompasses the whole earth. From east to west, David tells us that nothing can escape the warming influence of the sun. And can I tell you this? That warming influence is constant. It's not more today than it was 100 years ago or 1,000 years ago. It's the same today because it's based on who God is. The heavens... And the sun is speaking about the greatness of our God. No place in the world, it doesn't matter where you start your day, you're going to see the sun rising in the east and setting in the west. Sorry, the east and setting in the west. I know because it shines in our house every day. Every day it shines with power and glory. David shifts gears now as he moves uh, from verse 6 to verse 7. His focus moves from the world that God created to the word of God which he gave to man so he could have a fuller understanding of who he is. Now, the creation is exciting, it's great, it's amazing, it's awesome. But you know what? The word is even better. The word of God, because creation can't save you. Only the Word can save you. David's love for the Word of God is seen in his description of the Word. Let's first of all see what he says here. He talks about the awe of his Word. This is seen in six ways that David refers to the Word. And when we're talking about the Word, we're talking about the, the Bible. And they say, Pastor David didn't have the whole thing. No, but if he did, he'd be talking about it all the same way. So what he was talking about was, was about this much of it. This, this much of it. Genesis to Deuteronomy. That's what he was talking about. Okay? The word of God was was David. It just brought him great joy. It brought him great hope. (coughs) Excuse me. He talks about the law of the Lord. The law of the Lord. You know, this this little phrase this little section in Psalm 19 was was made into a song. Anybody sing it while you were growing up? Sing it in Sunday school. Marita raised her hand. I know Barb did. Uh, it's it's an amazing song maybe I will have to teach to you someday I won't sing it for you now you're you you do not have to worry about that okay the law of the lord the word law here it means instruction or teaching so it's not really just limited to the five books of moses but it is all that god has given to us so we, so we will know so you and I will know what he expects from us and how to live life the law of the lord He also talks about the testimony of the Lord. The word testimony is that which is said about something. The things that God says about the Lord in the pages of scripture are absolutely true. You don't have to question it. You don't have to doubt it. You don't have to worry about the authenticity of it. You can know beyond the shadow of a doubt that what God says about his son, about the Lord is true in his word. The testimony of the Lord is true. The statutes of the Lord, he talks about those as well. The statutes are the precepts or the ordinances of the Lord, the things by which God governs his creation. In other words, when the sun comes up, it comes up every day. God didn't give the sun a break. He didn't say on five days the sun would rise, and then on the the sixth and seventh day it wouldn't rise. It's the same every day. Here's another thing. You ever been to the ocean? You go to the ocean, and guess what you see at the ocean? The tide comes in, it goes out. It comes in, it goes out. It comes in, it goes out. You know what? If you count the waves, you see the waves rolling in, and you, you look say, "Oh, there's a really big wave." That big wave come crashes in. If you count, every seventh wave is a bigger wave. Really? Yeah, I've done it. We used to live—we used to live where they surf. Okay, and the surfers—they do that. They count the waves. They want to make sure that they they, they don't waste their energy on a measly little wave. They want the big one. So they're waiting for the big one that comes rolling in, and that's the one they ride. Every seventh wave. Every time. Why? Because God made it that way. It's the statutes by which He governs the universe. Sun rises, sun sets. Tides roll in, tides roll out. Seasons come, seasons go. We plant our stuff here in New York in May, June, first of June, and we expect come August, September, we're going to start harvesting some of that stuff. Why? Because God set it in motion that way. That's the way God made the the law of the harvest. It comes in at a certain time all the time. The statutes of the Lord. He talks about the commandments of the Lord. These are the ordinances or the things that God expects to be observed. We observed an ordinance this morning, didn't we? The ordinance of communion. God said, do it. So what do we do? We do it. He gave us two, communion and baptism. God said, be baptized. So what do you do? You'll be baptized. Why? Because you want to be obedient to the Lord, the commandment of the Lord. We might call them the oracles, if you will, of God. He talks about the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the reverence and awe of the Lord, which is only produced by the word of God. So in essence, we're talking about obedience to God's word. The fear of the Lord, the judgments of the Lord. This is the sixth one that he's talking about. The judgments of the Lord is that which God has decided or determined based on what he wrote in his word. God judged it to be so and he recorded it for us in the word. Six times we see that David places a high value on the word of God. These six descriptions of the word give us an important characteristics about how God uses the word in the lives of his people. Guess what? There's six of them as well. You think I'm you know, like three points in a poem for, for preparing a message? God, David's got it all down here too. Six of this, six of that, and six of the next. Six things that should attract us to God's word. They're, they're descriptions that communicate the virtuous character of God's word. David, first of all, says that the, the law of the Lord is what? It's perfect. It's perfect. What does that mean? Well, it's without spot. It's without blemish. It's wholesome. It's what you need to be perfect in your life. You will never be perfect apart from the Word of God. Now, that doesn't mean you'll be without sin, but it will mean that you'll be mature. You'll be growing in your walk with the Lord. It's perfect. God's Word is perfect without any mistakes. It's sure. The Word is sure. That means to be firm and to endure, to stand up to anything and everything. (coughs) excuse me, it's perfect, it's sure. David says, it is right. The first time this word is used in the Bible, it means right in God's eyes, okay? Not right in man's eyes, not right in my eyes, not right in in the government's eyes, it's right in God's eyes. Its basis meaning is to, excuse me, be straight in the sense of being level. I can look at things and Tell that they're level. I'll say this, but Barb, don't listen to me. The sign above the tote box out there is not level. So when I get done, I'll go out there and make it more level, okay? So this idea of of God's Word, it's the level in our lives, it's right, it's the standard, it's the mark. Ben's going to fix it now. It's that which you and I look at and say, yes, that is right, that is the objective, that is what we need to measure up to. It's also pure. There's an amazing word. It's, it's clear and it's sincere. Again, it has the idea of not being out of touch, not being out of order. It is pure, it is clear, it is sincere. It is clean, physically, morally, and ethically It is clean. God's word is clean. And you know what? If we want to live a morally clean, pure, ethically clean, right life, what do we use as our standard? The word of God. There's a couple of verses in the Bible that says, do not commit adultery and do not live in fornication. Those are God's commands. And we we keep those. It helps us become clean. It helps us stay clean. So it's perfect, it's sure, it's right, it's pure, it's clean. It is also true. It's true. Now that word true, it means it's sure, it's reliable. It's not going anywhere. You can hold a plumb line up to it. Anybody know what a plumb line is? You can hold a plumb line up to it and you'll see that it is absolutely straight. It is right on the mark and it's not going anywhere. Because it's grounded in the right foundation. So these are the things that should attract us to the the word of God. And then we see an appreciation. The psalmist has an appreciation for God's word. (coughs) Because of these six characteristics, we find six results that only God can bring into a person's life, and that's only after a person repents and desires to live by the word of God. What does the word of God do? Why should we appreciate the word of God so much? Well, first of all, David says it converts the soul. You see, from birth, our soul is sinful and needs to be healed. Or according to David, it needs to be converted. The word of God is what converts the soul. It's also used for making wise the simple. Paul speaks of this in the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians, where he says this, because the foolishness of God is wiser than man. In verse verse 25 of chapter 1, verse 28, he says, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty. You see, those that put their faith in Christ have spiritual wisdom, And that spiritual wisdom is the result of faith. Faith comes by what? According to Paul, Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We can't have faith without the word of God. It's impossible. People can't get saved without the word of God. It's the word of God that brings the quickening. It's the word of God that makes you wise. What did Paul tell Timothy? The word of God makes you wise unto salvation. It also rejoices the heart. The Word of God causes the heart to rejoice. In Philippians chapter 1, Paul speaks about joy and rejoicing. Both references speak to the results of the gospel message. You see, when a person's soul is converted, he is able to rejoice. In chapter 4, you know what he says in Philippians? Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. 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 No matter what's going on in your life, rejoice. The circumstances are temporary. The rejoicing is eternal. Why? Because it's based on where we're going to spend eternity, and that's in the presence of God. So it converts. It makes you wise. It causes you to rejoice. It enlightens the eyes. Peter reminds us of this teaching as well. He says you are a chosen. We talked about this not too long ago. You're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you might proclaim the praises of him who called you what? out of darkness into this marvelous light. Ah, the word of God enlightens the eyes It helps us come out of darkness into this amazing light. The word of God, it isn't just for a short period of time. It endures forever. It's enduring forever. God's word will stand forever. We sing the song. We sang it on Wednesday night. The Bible stands like a rock undaunted mid the raging storms of time. Its pages burn with the truth eternal and they glow with the light sublime. The Bible stands. Oh, God's Word, it's going to endure forever. Peter talks about it in chapter 1, verse 25, where he says, but the Word of the Lord endures forever. The Word of God is also righteous altogether. Righteous requires a standard, and the standard for true righteousness is God himself. So you see, the word is measured by the holiness and perfectness of God and is completely right and pure, and therefore will affect one's life by bringing righteousness into it. It is righteous altogether. David moves on and he talks about the application of the word. David gives us the response that he has and that you and I should have to this incredible word. We see the powerful benefits of the word. Compared to what the world has to offer, the word of the Lord is far superior. David says, it's more desirous than gold. The most precious element in the world, gold. Riches are something that many strive for in this world, in this life. They want to have more and more money, more and more things. Many times we find ourselves focusing on money and if I just had a little bit more, I could do this or I could do that. David is stressing here that it is more important for us to strive for obedience to God's word than it is to have a bigger bank account. He's just given us multiple reasons why we should long for the word of God. You see, this gold that David is talking about here is not just any gold, but it is fine gold. It's pure gold. That which has gone through the refiner's fire, it's been tested and determined to be the purest gold. I think I told you one time we took Barb's, we had the rings that we got for our wedding, um, there was starting to be some wear on it, so we took it into this jeweler in our own neighborhood and... uh, because Barb saw a new style that she wanted so we had it all changed over and it was a wide wedding band and the diamond was inside of it and it looked really nice but it made her finger, it didn't turn green, it just made a blister on her finger. So we took it to a different jeweler <clears throat> one that had a higher reputation and he looks at the ring and he says, well, we're going to have to melt this all down and we're going to have to make a new band and a new, put a new setting and all this kind of stuff. So he calls us up and he says, um, we have a problem. So well, what's the problem? This gold is not, We thought we we were buying a certain carat of gold. It's not that carat. It's not that quality. When he melted it down, he saw the impurities that were there. Probably why her finger was not doing so well when the ring was on it. So I said, well, you got to do what you got to do. So he said, we have to add a higher quality gold to bring up the purity of the gold and we'll we'll get all the impurities out of it and then we'll form it into a new ring. Refiners gold. Pure gold. The gold that was right, gold that was best. David says, the word of God is more desirous than gold. It's sweeter also than honey. If it's it's not wealth you're striving for, but sustenance, David tells us that God's word can satisfy the deepest cravings that we have. Honey was sweet, just like it is today. But you know what? The honeycomb is even sweeter than than the honey itself. Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Wow. One commentator made this remark in relationship to gold and honey. It says The honey may be designed to show the elderly the desirability of God's word, just as gold is designed to show the young that the word is to be desired. The appeal is to be universal, whether it's gold or honey. He goes on, he talks about the practical benefits of the word. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. You see, the word helps us to know that we, what we should do and what we shouldn't do. It acts as a warning device. The first car we bought when we came back from South Africa, it didn't have a camera, it had instead a beeping thing. When you backed up and you got too close to something, it would go beep, beep. And the closer you got, beep, beep, beep. And when you're about ready to hit it, beep, 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 beep. beep you better stop because you're going to hit something. It was a warning device. I wish our backup camera had the beep to go along with it. You see, you and I, sometimes we need warning devices. The word of God serves as our warning device. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. He also says, in keeping of them, there is great reward. You see, obedience brings rewards to the child of God. What's the reward? Knowing that you've pleased your Lord. As a child, wasn't it a great feeling to know that you brought... Pleasure to your mom or your dad or to your teacher. You did it right. You get that test back and it said 100% and it says, well done. Keep up the good work. Yes. Brought you joy, didn't it? Made you happy. In keeping them, there is great reward. You see, this wisdom psalm that we were looking at here, Psalm 19, closes with a personal plea to God from David, from the psalmist. His plea should be our plea. Here's the plea. He asked God to help him not sin. Help me not sin, God. I want to live right before you. He makes references to those sins that he will commit without even trying to sin. We're all guilty of these kinds of sins. And only God and God's word can deliver us from those kinds of sin. David's heart's desire was not to let these sins be a part of his life. He also talks about the sins that we are fully aware of. He calls them the presumptuous sins. Sometimes these are the sins that we think we're justified in committing. Uh, I, I can do that because. If it's wrong, it's wrong. If it's sin, it's sin. There's never an excuse. Yeah, but you don't know how bad I've had it in life. Doesn't matter. Doesn't make it right. Sins that we enjoy committing. He's talking about those kinds of sins as well. If we've given God's word the priority in our lives that David gave in his life, then we will not want these sins to be a part of our life as well. You see, David's goal in life is to be blameless. It's a difficult thing, but it should be the goal of our lives as well. I remember somebody once saying, um, in relation to gray areas, he said, You know what? Take the moral high ground, my brother. Take the moral high ground. Not only should we be striving for the moral high ground, but we should also be striving for the spiritual high ground. We want to live above reproach. He asks God to help him live righteously. He says, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart, oh God, he cuts right to the chase. He doesn't just want to talk the talk, but he wants to walk the walk. He knows that the things we do start in the mind and are confirmed in the heart, and then we act on those things. We need to make sure that our minds and our hearts are pure, and then the actions will follow. And lastly, he says, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. David knows that he can't live righteously in his own strength. He needs the Lord's strength. It requires more than my own personal fortitude. I can't pull myself up by the bootstrap. I have to depend on something greater than me, someone greater than me. It requires strength that I can't muster and you can't muster it either. So David, like you and I, he appealed to the Lord, the covenant God of Israel. We're in a covenant relationship with the one true God and we have as much right to appeal to him and ask him to help us through these struggles that we face as David did. You see, as redeemed people, this is the way you and I should live because this is the way that brings glory to our great creator and our personal God. What a psalm, Psalm 19. It's as practical as it gets. This psalm is right where we are today. We love to speak of creation and how mighty our God is. We love to enjoy the magnificence of creation. And we also talk about commitment to the word. So David ties them two together, ties both of those things together and he challenges us to live accordingly. Perhaps today it's, we need to do a little bit of self-examination. We need to ask God, where I am and how am I doing? What do I need to change? Is there something that I can do better in, in regards to my walk with you, oh God? We need to be like David and move from just lip service into actually serving God by giving him our all, which results then in glory to our great God. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. We thank you so much for loving us. We thank you for who you are. You're an awesome God. And that awesomeness is seen in your creation. Father, we look around and we see the beauty of the creation of your hand. And we also understand that the creation helps us see the the handiwork of you, but it also helps us see our need of a relationship with this great creator. And that relationship comes through the word of God. You and I, as we read the word of God, God, help us to let that word encourage us, challenge us, rebuke us, strengthen us, make us what we ought to be before you. Help us to be like David and to love your word with all of our hearts and all of our minds. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.